Welcome to Software Architecture Radio, where we discuss the latest in software architecture patterns and practices with the hands-on practitioners creating them. You can find us on the web at softwarearchitecturerad.io. I'm your host, Matt Stein. This episode of Software Architecture Radio is sponsored by Pivotal. How do you learn new things? You listen to podcasts like this and pick a few key events to attend. At this year's Spring One platform, learn all about the latest technology and patterns for modern systems, Spring Boot, Spring Cloud, Cloud Foundry, and so much more. Go to springoneplatform.io to sign up for this December event. ThoughtWorks is proud to sponsor this episode of Software Architecture Radio. Building Evolutionary Architecture is the new book authored by ThoughtWorks senior technologists Dr. Rebecca Parsons, Neil Ford, and former ThoughtWorker Patrick Kwa. The book explores new ways to think about software architecture and how to create architectures that can change over time while preserving their essential characteristics. It is a must-read for those passionate about software development. Find out more at thoughtworks.com slash B-E-A, all uppercase, where you can download a free chapter. My guest today is Simon Brown. Simon is an independent software development consultant specializing in software architecture. He is the author of Software Architecture for Developers, the creator of the C4 Software Architecture Model, as well as Structurizer, which is a collection of tooling to help software teams visualize, document, and explore their software architecture. He regularly speaks at software development conferences, meetups, and organizations around the world. In 2013, he won the IEEE Software-Sponsored Saturn 2013 Architecture in Practice Presentation Award for his presentation about the conflict between Agile and architecture. But today, we're going to talk about a topic that Simon has written and spoken about a lot recently, that of modular monoliths. But uh, before we get into that, Simon, why don't you tell our listeners a, a little bit about you and kind of how you got to be you at this point in your career? Sure. Hi, Matt. Thanks very much for have, uh, having me on the podcast. So I, my, my background is as a software developer, basically. Uh, I graduated from university. I think I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts, and you said you did computer science, but you didn't study databases. Is that right? That is actually right. I managed to make it out with a computer science degree, and I did not have to take a compiler course. I didn't have to take a database course. I did not manage to uh, dodge the operating systems course, though. Right, yeah. So we did operating systems and we did compilers. I actually wrote a C++ compiler in C++, which was a bit weird. But I, I also didn't, did no databases. Yeah, it's an odd one to ask. Uh, so I, I graduated from university uh, in 96. And then I basically moved into London in England, uh, where I worked for a bunch of small consulting companies building software for customers in a whole bunch of different industries, finance and media and all sorts of things. And I guess my, my kind of chief roles on the team were software developer, software designer, and eventually I moved into the architecture role. And really that led me to where I am today. So if you work for a consulting company and you want to grow that consulting company, one of the things you need to do is to create more teams. In order to create more teams, you need to grow more architects. So uh, myself and a couple of colleagues created some internal architecture training which we then took out to conferences, um, and that's where the, the kind of training stuff came from. So I, I run one- and two-day workshops around the world teaching people about software architecture and also software architecture sketching and diagramming. I also speak conferences like yourself, and I now also have a startup. So as, as part of this uh, software architecture workshop, we, we get people to, to draw some diagrams, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about later. 
And the obvious question that comes up somewhere towards the end of this workshop is what tooling do you recommend? And in the past, I've just been saying, well, just use Physio. And that's not a really satisfactory answer, of course. So I've, I've got some tooling called Structurizer, which is a, it's a way to draw software architecture diagrams, basically. And that's me in a nutshell. Excellent. Yeah, I was actually thinking about things that we could talk about. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time digging into Structurizer, but time is just uh, not very prevalent in my life right <laughs> now. So rather than me try to talk about Structurizer, maybe... Uh, you can tell us a little bit more about that since I would love to send uh, happy customers your way. Certainly. So if we if we backtrack a bit, the approach to diagramming that I teach people is called the C4 model. And it's a, it's a simple set of hierarchical diagrams to describe software architecture from different levels of abstraction. If you, if you imagine you're, you're building a software system, you, you start with a system context diagram that basically says, here's my system in the middle as a box. And surrounding that box are the people that interact with your system and the other systems that your system interacts with. You then kind of do the pinch to zoom in movement on the system boundary to show the containers inside it. By container, I basically mean an application or a data store. And then you can kind of do the pinch to zoom in movement on each application or data store to show the components inside that. So it's a, it's a really simple hierarchical set of building blocks uh, with a set of hierarchical diagrams. And Structurizer is simply some uh, web-based tooling that allows you to create those diagrams. There are uh, a couple of ways to do it. If, if you're familiar with Plant UML, uh, Plant UML lets you create UML diagrams with text. There's something called Structurizer Express, which lets you create simple architecture diagrams using a, a simple domain-specific language. The more interesting side of things is, is really creating architecture models and diagrams using Java code and uh, C-sharp code. And basically what you do is you create an object graph in memory that represents the stuff in the C4 model. So software systems, containers, components, and, and, the, inter and the interactions between them. And then you upload it to uh, Structurizer, Structurizer, draw some pictures. That's the basic concept. Oh, very nice. I've had mixed experience, uh, I guess, over the course of my career with tools that purport to give me diagrams from code or vice versa. I, I had experience with a tool, probably the first real IDE that I ever actually used was called TogetherSoft Control Center. Right. And it was, you know, incredibly ambitious in that, you know, you would get these round trip engineering diagrams from code, which meant that every time you typed a character into the IDE, the IDE would attempt to go off and reconstruct the entire model that you had. And of course, the PCs that we were developing code on at the time probably had 256 meg of memory or something. I mean, there just wasn't a lot of resource going on. And so we all started doing crazy things like writing our code in, in VI or Emacs and then pasting it into the IDE to make the tooling happy and make the process happy. But actually using that as a tool was 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 a little bit odd. So I guess we've advanced the art maybe a little bit now. And I, I guess you're not doing round trip real time generation or are you? No, so I, I also used the uh, TogetherJ software, and this was back in, what, the late 90s, early 2000s maybe? And, and you're right, yeah. the PCs were really, really slow. And also Java 1 point something was also really, really slow. And, of course, all of that software was written in, in Java. What Structurizer does is so you can basically write a bunch of code to create your architecture model manually. That's kind of the simplest use case. Or if you have access to a code base that you want to model, uh, there are a bunch of component finders uh, built into the Java and the C-sharp um, structurized libraries, which are all on GitHub. They're open source. 
And essentially what you do is you feed the component finder a set of rules and that set of rules defines how you go and find components in your code base. If you've ever tried to point um, a reverse engineering tool at a large code base and get like a UML class diagram, you'll know how bad that is. You get thousands and thousands of boxes and an infinitely yep. higher number of lines. So what I'm trying to do is, is something a bit more intelligent where instead of drawing a diagram where we show all of the classes that make up the code base, we kind of zoom out one notch and we start bundling classes together to form components. And of course, the way you do that bundling, that's where the component finder and the various different rules come into play. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I think that is, you know, an interesting transition into uh, a couple of the ideas that you, you brought out in, in the talk that I watched recently. And listeners, I, you know, we'll get to the modular monoliths bit in, in due time, but I think I want to stay on this just a little bit. There were a couple of things that you brought out that seem very closely related to this, and I think there's no accident there. <laughs> and 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 one of that, it, one of those things is that you touched on the fact that architecture concepts don't really exist in the programming languages that we use. Although we use words like layer and component and and module all the time. You, you find precious few examples of those words showing up in languages. And even when they do, they tend to not actually mean what we're talking about um, when we say those. And, and you actually kind of say that, well, it would be great if they existed, but even if they don't exist, you brought up this notion of an, an architecturally evident coding style. And it feels like there's a sense in which, you know, if, if I'm doing things that way and I'm going to allow you to kind of talk about what that is, then um, the tooling is able to also do a much better job of giving you a, a picture of an architecture that is actually what the architecture is as opposed to, oh, this is what we say the architecture is. But when we get down into the code, it's actually something radically different from that and, and often quite a bit worse than the ideal that we have pictured in our mind. Right. This is something that George Fairbanks in his book uh, called Just Enough Software Architecture calls the model code gap. If you listen to anybody discussing architecture, you know, typically around a, a whiteboard picture, they will be using terms like layer and component and that sort of thing. And then if you look at the code, those things don't exist. So, you know, Java doesn't have a component keyword. Java doesn't have a layer keyword either, for example. Uh, and what we normally do is we we use the language constructs that we have available to recreate these larger abstractions. So, of course, in Java, the, the typical way we create layers is to use a package. So, you know, we have one package for our web stuff and one package for our business stuff and one package for our data access stuff. And maybe we have sub-packages in, in those, but there's there's some sort of logical grouping uh, that corresponds to the architectural construct. The problem is, of course, those conventions, those rules, those guidelines, whenever you want to call them, are not strictly followed by all people on all teams. And that's why a lot of architecture diagrams never quite re reflect reality. So, you know, you go to the whiteboard, you have this beautiful looking architecture diagram with lots of really nice, you know, highly cohesive, lowly coupled components. And then you look at the code and it's something totally different. That's the gap I really want to bridge. And, and the whole architecture evident coding style is, is really nothing more than dropping hints and metadata into your code so that your code reflects the abstractions that you think about when you're having that architecture discussion. And it sounds very grand, uh, and, and lofty, but it's nothing more than things like a naming convention. So for example, if you have an architecture diagram and the architecture diagram has a box called logging component, let's make sure that somewhere in the codes, there's something called logging component. Similarly, things like namespacing and packaging conventions. So maybe we say that 
Every box on this component diagram corresponds to a separate namespace or package or assembly or DLL or something like this. Uh, and also machine-readable metadata. So maybe we use a, a custom at component annotation to signify that this is somehow architecturally significant. And of course, frameworks like Spring do this, don't they? So if you're building a Spring MVC app, you have at controller, at service, at repository. So we can simply lift those existing conventions if they exist in a code base uh, and use that to kind of bridge this model code gap. Got it. So we kind of went in and I'm going to come back out a little bit because we're kind of talking about something that exists that we see repeatedly, which is there is an idea of how we think that code software system should be organized. We draw it, we go and and write the code, and then we end up writing code that at one point you touch on and say, well, all software systems basically look the same regardless of what the architecture of the system actually should be. Because as soon as we get into the editor, we start creating the same directory structure every single time. And we kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, fi- fi- you know, we, 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 we parcel the, the classes out into that structure. And as soon as you try to do something different from that, it seems very unnatural. And in fact, you get into frameworks like, say, uh, you know, Ruby on Rails popularized this structure of, you know, building it into the framework that, oh, yeah, there is a controllers folder and if you stick code into that folder specific things happen and there is a models folder and you stick code into that folder and and other special things happen and so it's really become kind of ingrained into us that the layered architecture is the only way that that we know how to do things and then inevitably you touched on a, a bunch of different reasons why, you know, when we start there, we inevitably seem to end up into what we've kind of called the big ball of mud because we start creating these, uh, you know, these tangled dependencies um, between all these classes because nothing stops us from doing it. It's, it's incredibly easy. In right, fact, exactly, yeah. the tooling facilitates us actually saying, oh, if you start typing the name of something, oh, would you like any of these things? You know, with, without any care in the world as to saying, oh, should you actually be touching any of those things from the point at which you are? But the conversation that's kind of then popped up in the last two or three years is, oh, what's well, all the monoliths fault? That's, that's why this is happening. It's that monoliths are, are evil. And now there's this other thing on the opposite end of the, of the dichotomy called microservices, which are good. And we should aspire to that. And we should, you know, kill all of the monoliths immediately because that's the source of all of our problems. And I'm setting you up on purpose <laughs> to kind of take that straw man and, and do what you will with it. But uh, is that is that what you're seeing? And how do we correct that misconception if it is, in fact, a misconception? Uh, that's exactly what I'm seeing. And you're definitely right in that the tooling lets us do lots of things we perhaps shouldn't, you know, auto import and all that sort of thing. If, if you kind of step back a second and, and let's say we go with a, a traditional layered architecture. So if we have like a, a controllers package and a services package and a, and a data access package, because we're using different packages in Java, for example, to store those different types of classes and interfaces, in order for them to be publicly accessible by other packages, they need to be marked as public. So, of course, there's often very little tooling and it's only through conventions and guidelines that teams adopt to say, you know, make sure your controllers don't bypass the services layer and access the um, data access objects repositories directly. And I have seen some teams create architectural violation checking, which they plug into their build system. I don't see that a lot. I don't know if it's something you come across in your customers. 
I've certainly seen them, and you know, much like anything else that stops us from actually pushing the build through. Yeah. When the rubber hits the road and we have to get a release out the door. Oh, yes, they get turned off, don't they? Any, anything that's screaming, <laughs> you can't go forward, that's not a you know an obvious functional test violation, says, okay, we'll just shut that thing up for right now so that we can get the release out the door, and then we'll turn it back on. And, and, and you do this enough, you say, well, maybe we'll just forget to turn it on the next the next time, and eventually those things start to go quiet. Um, so, so I've seen that. I did have, I guess, um, episode two of this podcast, um, I had a conversation with, with Tudor Girba about some tooling that he's working on, um, called Moose. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and Moose does some really interesting things around, uh, I didn't get into the actual nitty gritty details of the implementation, but we talked about this notion of a kind of a, an architectural query language. Yeah. Where I can, I can write queries and I can express what I want those results to be. And then once I see that, oh yeah, this is what we want to have be true of this architecture, then I can kind of mark that thing as now this is a test that must pass as a part of the build. And that sounded very interesting to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to find some time in the, in the near future to actually do some playing with that because, uh, I think that, uh, there's certainly value in, uh, being able to have descriptions of architecture that are machine parsable and can be transformed into things that the computer can do on your behalf to tell you when you're doing the wrong thing versus doing the right thing. But ultimately, again, I think coming back to the programming language itself. There's a rant every couple of days about, you know, why are you putting all this stuff in comments that you should be putting in code? <laughs> yeah. And there's a sense in which, well, if we could express what we wanted to express in code, then we probably would express what we wanted to express um, in the code. But because it's not there, we invent all these other hacks to right. to make it happen. And then sometimes we've gotten so used to the hacks that when the something does show up in the language that we can use, we, we don't actually leverage it. Yeah, so I met Tudor for the first time at the O'Reilly Software Architect Conference that we were at in London back in October, I think, last year. Yeah. He's essentially creating a, a proper model of a, of a code base uh, that you can then query. And, of course, that's the problem with a lot of the current architecture violation checking tooling. All they're doing is they're looking uh, for regexes, and they're basically saying stuff in star-star controller can't call stuff in star-star repository. And, of course, that's very, very, very basic. Uh, and there's lots more stuff we want to do. Yeah. To switch over to microservices for a second, the thing I do really like about microservices is that they enforce boundaries. And of course, unless you're doing microservices really badly, you're not going to create a bunch of repository microservices and business logic microservices and then kind of web controller microservices. Uh, and and really the whole approach, is, as you know, is to, is to you know look for bounded context and aggregates and and it's a it's a it's a top to bottom thing isn't it so we find everything relating to a customer and we dump that in a customer service that does something like that mm. so that's a really nice thing I, I like about microservices and if you compare that to the way that we normally structure a monolith we don't do that we have the customer controllers the customer service or customer business logic and then the whole bunch of customer data access objects and so we're, we're kind of artificially breaking our monoliths up into these layers but we don't take that same approach for our, our microservice architectures and really what all I'm kind of encouraging people to do is to say look at what microservices does well which is encapsulation modularity and take that same pattern and apply it back to your monolithic code base so none of this you know slicing up by layers uh, horizontally and also none of this slicing up by layers vertically either but take a take a more kind of balanced thoughtful approach and do the same design thinking that you'll do to come up with a list of services in a microservices architecture 
but don't make them services, you know, make them components with nice, neat boundaries that you can put into a monolithic system. And that's the whole module monolith thing. Right. So basically what you're saying is it, it, it's, it, it is possible to do this well. And part of the reason why we haven't done it well, and, and you brought this out in your talk, is it was a really interesting slide I think that said, you know, it, we, we've been reintroduced to the notion of design yeah. through the microservices conversation because we have to now think again about what decomposition actually means. Right. It's no longer, oh, well, our decomposition is controllers, services, <laughs> and, and yeah. repositories and, and, and domain classes. Because that's what our framework does for us. Right. You know, that, that's, that's no longer, you know, and I've had the conversation with people. It's like, you know, when, when, when Rails became a thing, and Rails did a lot of wonderful things for software engineering, and it, it, it helped us in many ways. But also because, and this is, you know, I, I've had a struggle of going into shops that were very heavily Rails-centric at times, whether currently or in the past, of getting people to think architecturally because for all practical purpose, Rails was your architecture. Yeah. You didn't have to think about architecture. You just needed to go fill in the appropriate blanks. And as long as that architecture was the appropriate architecture for what you were trying to build, then good things would probably happen. But in many cases, it wasn't the appropriate architecture or over time as the systems needs. And this was you know, kind of what became inherent, I think, in a lot of the conversation on, oh, we abandoned Rails for X. And it was very often Java, but it's other things as well, because Rails doesn't do Y. And if you kind of squinted and look and th looked through, it wasn't that they moved from Rails to Java or Rails to Node or something else. It was that they actually started thinking about a new architecture that was actually appropriate to the problem that they were now trying to solve. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. If, if you look at a lot of conferences at the moment, you'll see a lot of conference talks being proposed that are, uh, you know, things like applying domain driven design to microservices in order to find microservice boundaries. And there are lots of talks about, you know, good and bad ways to decompose your architecture into a bunch of microservices. You never ever see any talks about this is how you should decompose your monolith into things. Because uh, as you say, you know, you plug in a framework and you just do what the framework says. I think George Fairbanks calls this, uh, indifferent architecture. You're basically just getting what's there, you know, what's provided by the, by the tooling for you. So I, I think that's something that's really interesting about the microservices thing, hype, whatever you want to call it. It has got people thinking once again about, well, how do we do decomposition? And of course, Decomposition is a thing in computer science. And sometimes what I like to do with my, uh, my training course attendees is, is ask them a really simple question. And that question is, how do you design software? So if you have a set of requirements, how do you get to a notion of a design, you know, a bunch of diagrams on a whiteboard that illustrate the thing that you're going to build? And most of the answers I get are just, oh, we use our experience. You know, we decomposed our thing into three boxes, not four, because that's what we've done before. And it seems people are no longer aware of the different decomposition strategies and techniques, you know, uh, functional decomposition and volatility-based decomposition and, and, and all of that stuff. And I think that's a shame. I think there's some some kind of core classic knowledge that we seem to have lost in our industry. 
Yeah, this is you playing the role of, of Socrates and <laughs> trying to like anyway. <laughs> uncover uncover the actual kind of foundational value system on which your design thinking is built. And as it turns out, there's really not much of a foundation there because you've never had to build one before. And it's interesting because I was looking at, you know, a lot of the resources that you were putting up there to suggest that people to go read. And there was this, you know, nice old paper on the criteria to be used in decomposing systems into modules, which, as it turns out, was the second time someone has put that paper in front of me in the last three months. Um, the, the the other person um, was uh, named uh, Mike Gehard, who was at Pivotal. He just left to go do uh, a, a startup thing himself, and he was kind of getting he, – he's been going on this journey of how to talk about moving from where we are, which is big balls of mud and bad design or lack of design thinking at all, um, what we would normally call monoliths. But the monolith, you're saying, it's not the monolith's fault. It's the lack of design thinking right. that that is that is the problem. And moving that towards microservices. And he's kind of taken – I see a lot of the same thinking in his approach that I've seen um, in the approach that, that, that you've been talking through. And he uh, said, yeah, there was this really great paper that I read. Um, it was really old, and it talked about all the stuff we're talking about right now. And so when I saw your talk, I went and searched through my email and clicked on the link to the paper. And sure enough, it was the same, the same exact one, paper. Yeah. yeah, the Parnas paper. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure. In fact, I, I'm sure that you can you can create a mess with a microservices architecture. You know, if you take this, the same lack of design thinking to a, a distributed system, you are going to end up in a horrible, horrible mess. So it's, it, you're right. It's not the monolith's fault. It's just the lack of design thinking uh, that actually goes into designing that thing properly. And, and of course, it's it's not a world of extremes either. You know, if you take a, a blank sheet of paper, there's nothing stopping you having a hybrid approach. There's nothing stopping you created a, a well-crafted, you know, highly modular monolith and then because you have got those boundaries understood and carved out nice and neat, you can then kind of literally lift and shift that component and make it a, a remotable callable microservice. There's a lot to be said about, you know, creating well-designed, highly modular monoliths. Well, in, in, in many cases, it's probably easier. You know, if I'm just getting started, I'm, I'm greenfield. I, I don't even know if the thing I'm getting ready to build is going to actually have a market. It's actually going to have users. It's going to be a success at all. We might get three months into this and decide this is a horrible idea. We shouldn't do this at all. Probably a lot easier to approach that from a monolith that, okay, I've just got one thing to deploy yeah. and manage and, and iterate on as opposed to, oh, well, we need to create you know, 15 two pizza teams and give them all a microservice to build and integrate all this and, and figure out what service discovery we're going to use and figure out how we're going to monitor all these things. Yeah. And security. And we get three months down the road and yeah, this was a bad idea. We shouldn't have ever started this in the first place, but look at all this, you know, kind of infrastructure and mess that we've created just to be able to get something off the ground. Yes. Yeah. You're right. There's a, there's a lot of engineering overhead that you, that you need to put in place to do that. Something I've done with Structurizer is, is Structurizer is essentially a, a web API and a, and a web application, uh, all running on Spring MVC on Tomcat. And essentially those are two monoliths. They're nice, highly modular monoliths. And I did that because of exactly what you said. I wanted to get started quickly. I wanted to prove some ideas and make sure this thing was going to work. And, and I can certainly see a couple of instances in my, in my monolithic code base, you know, things in there, components in there 
that could be taken out to be microservices later if I need to scale. But yeah, stay simple to start with. Good advice. This episode of Software Architecture Radio is also sponsored by O'Reilly. Most software development conferences focus on increasing your skills by providing technical sessions in a single track for architects. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is designed to provide the necessary professional training that software architects need to succeed. A unique event, it covers the full scope of a software architect's job, from IT to leadership and business skills. It also provides a forum for networking and hearing what other professionals have learned in real-world experiences. Whether you're optimizing legacy systems or migrating to cloud-native architecture, the Software Architecture Conference provides the depth and breadth to get you to the next level. You can find out more at conferences.oreilly.com slash software hyphen architecture. This episode of Software Architecture Radio is sponsored by ArcConf 2017, the premier North American software architecture conference. Are you interested in attending the Ultimate Architecture Conference in 2017? Join us for ArcConf coming December 11th to 14th in Clearwater, Florida. ArcConf features nine architecture tracks, 150-plus sessions, world-class speakers, and it's all held at a five-star beach resort. What could be better? Go to artconf.com for further details. You'll also get the chance to meet me there as I'll be teaching a cloud-native architecture patterns workshop on day one. So uh, one of the things that you talked about quite a bit was this notion of uh, cargo culting ideas. I, I picked out, you know, two or three different um, ones that stuck out to me. You know, one was this layering thing that we're doing. Is that a cargo cult? And then the the, the one that was a lot more uh, provocative to me that I that I enjoyed was, you know, this this notion of um, unit testing. And most of the testing that we should have is unit testing. And um, we have this testing pyramid that shows exactly that. And um, you, you ask the question, which is fun. This is this is what I liked about your talks is everything that we assumed that we don't ever ask the question. You decide, you know what, I'm going to ask that question. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 see what happens to the crowd. And, you know, when you say you know, we haven't talked about cargo culting yet on this podcast. So uh, you get to introduce us to the notion um, for everyone that's not familiar with that. And then, and, you know, maybe you can touch on some of the cargo cults that you've run across and, 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 and you know, why are they, why, why is it problematic? Why are they maybe taking us the wrong direction? Right. So I guess we have to go back to history. I'm, I'm probably going to get the story wrong, but I think the gist of it is, is mostly correct. So the whole cargo cult thing came from, I think there was an island in the Pacific sometime during the war and there, a bunch of people used to stand near the runway. Planes used to swoop in low and, and drop packages. And, and I think I have something to do with the, the forces uh, supplies and things. And then the forces left and, and the natives basically did the same thing. They stood at the end of the runway and hoped and waited for the planes to come through and, and drop the supplies. And of course they didn't, but they kept doing that because that's, that's the belief that they had. I, I think that's a story. And the layering thing, I think, is another cargo cult. So uh, as you said, you know, you, you pick up a framework like Rails or, or, or whatever. You go and read a book about how do I build a, a an MVC-style web app. You go onto Stack Overflow and you say, I'm building a new Java project. It's a web app. How do I structure my code? You download sample projects off the internet, you know, off GitHub. And they all have this layering thing kind of built in by default. And the big question is why, right? Why is that the de facto, the default way to do it? Now, Martin Fowler has a, a good bleaky post on this. Uh, uh, it's called Presentation Domain Layering, something like that. 
And, and, and he basically says this kind of traditional three-layer architecture thing is a good way to get started. So, you know, if you have a small code base, do the layering thing because it's a good way to start to organize your code. But once you get any complexity or quantity of code, you need to start doing modularity inside those layers. And this is when you perhaps need to think about other uh, code structuring techniques. So that's uh, packaged by a layer. Uh, other ones are, of course, packaged by a vertical slice, packaged by feature, for example. Uh, and the thing I like is is what I call packaged by component. So again, it's taking that kind of microservices approach to let's get everything related to this single thing and pop it all away in a you know nice, neat component. The way I do that is using the Java access modifiers, quote unquote, properly. So I want to package protect as much code as I possibly can so you can't see it from the outside world. And again, so it's all about getting people thinking about, you know, is layering the correct way to structure my particular code base? Are there some are there other alternatives? What are those alternatives and what are the trade-offs of doing that? The other one's testing. So once you start thinking about how to organize your code base differently, you can start to apply different testing strategies as well. So if you're doing the layered architecture, one of the things we're kind of taught to do again in the books and Stack Overflow and sample projects on GitHub is that you unit test all of your individual classes in isolation. So if you have a data access object, it's talking to a MySQL database. You don't really want to spin up MySQL and do a bunch of, let's call them integration tests and quote unquote. So what we do is we have some sort of weird mock for our MySQL database and we write some nice quick running tests. And that's what the unit testing thing is all about. Uh, and the goal is with the testing pyramid, as most people might have seen, is you do a, a lot of low level, very quick, fast running unit tests to cover a good chunk of your code base. And that gives you confidence that your code is going to work. And then you move up the stack. And in the traditional testing pyramid, you have these integration tests. And very few people can describe what an integration test is. It's integrating something. So, of course, if we backtrack, you know, what's a unit test? Well, it's a small test that runs fast. Yes, but what is a unit? And again, a lot of people can't answer that question. And in fact, if you poll an audience at a conference, you'll get a bunch of different answers as, as, as to what a unit means. For some people, it's a single method. For others, it's a single class. And for other people, it's a, it's a unit of functionality, like a feature or something. So lots of people have different ideas of what, about what a unit is. So, you know, Ignore that for a second. What's an integration test? Well, it's integrating units. If we don't know what a unit is, how do we know that, what, that we're integrating them? I guess for most people, an integration test is I'm integrating my code with something outside of my control, like a database, for example. And that's why when I go and visit Teams, they have integration tests that are these horrible, slow-running, highly brittle tests that break every Monday morning and usually get at ignored because they're just such a pain to maintain. So that kind of got me thinking. You know, if we're taking a different approach to structuring our code, why shouldn't we take a different approach to structuring our tests? This all comes back to the C4 thing. So the way that I describe a software system is very simply as a software system is made up of one or more containers, applications or data stores. Each of those containers is made up of a number of components. So I want to specifically and explicitly here use the word component to mean a bunch of related functionality put behind a nice, clean, simple interface. And because I mostly deal with Java and C Sharp, my components are built from classes. So rather than having this unit and integration tests terminology, why don't I have tests that explicitly test individual classes that make up my components, and also tests that are slightly larger that test the components as a single thing? That's really my approach to testing. So I will do class-level testing, component-level testing, and then system-level testing, which is your typical, you know, hitting APIs from the outside, Selenium, that sort of thing. 
So it's kind of completely changing the notion of the test pyramid. I still want lots of fast running class tests, but I'm not ignoring the fact that my components are, you know, architecturally significant, important things in their own right. It's the same as microservices architecture. You know, if you have a bunch of microservices written in Java, you'll probably have a bunch of low level unit tests that test the classes inside the microservices. And then you might have a bunch of microservice type tests that test through the microservices interface. And it's the same thing. It's making sure that the abstractions we use to describe our architecture are reflected in the way we structure our code and also the way that we test that code. And that's really what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make the architecture thing I'm building match the code structure, match the tests. And again, it's getting people to question why are you doing the current unit integration testing thing? Is there a different way you can better approach the testing process? And don't misquote me on this, but what I really want to do is to write the minimum amount of test code to get the highest level of coverage I possibly can. And of course, there are there are extremes here. I could write a million little tiny unit tests that cover everything. Or if I'm really clever or stupid, I can write one Uber integration test that tests the entirety of my code base. Again, extremes, there's something in between here. Very hard to misquote you when you got to say it out loud just <laughs> yeah. then, right? But you realize you're, you're challenging a very deeply held set of notions here. So, so when I, I, I started picking up a lot of concepts that I wish I had learned in university on the job by getting into a team, trying to do software, realizing that what we were doing was terribly wrong. I didn't know why it was wrong, but... It clearly wasn't working, and so I start reading books and going to conferences and trying to figure out, well, surely there's somebody out there who's doing this right. You know, One of the books that I picked up on this notion of testing, it was actually a test-driven development book, it talked about unit testing, but it said no, units aren't classes at all. In fact, you need to get away from this notion of a unit is a class. Uh, in, in, in this author's estimation, I can't remember the author's name, in his estimation, a unit was a set of related functionality that in some cases didn't cross the boundaries that caused you to get into integration test land. And maybe that was the slow running uh, bit. It's, it's been years since I read this book. And um, I was even at an early XP conference and there was a whole breakout session dedicated to, well, we know unit testing is a bad name for what this really is. Yeah. And the whole thing was, what are we going to call this instead? <laughs> wow. Um, it was really a big bike shedding session on what should we call these things. And they were very, again, very passionate proponents of, oh, we should call it this or we should call it this. But um, there was this universal recognition that unit testing was bad. But in the mainstream, well, of course, a unit's a class. Yeah. In fact, it's such it's so obvious that a unit's a class that we're going to make all the tools actively fight against a unit test testing anything other than a class. And in fact, when we get into frameworks that automate scaffolding, well, we'll just automatically create you a unit test for every class that you create, which is again, you know, something you saw show up in things like Rails and and other uh, you know um, you know clones of, of that. So uh, you know, we've again uh, we've gotten to the point now, many years after that practice, like okay, well, the framework told me I needed a unit test for every class, so I'm going to have to do that. And of course, you say class test. That's you know that that makes uh, some amount of sense, but you could apply this to any layer where, you know, if the tooling tells us to do it this way, that seems to be the path of least resistance. So we're just going to do it that way. I think one of the things that you're trying to say is, you know, we don't have much design thinking in the architecture. We don't have much design thinking present in the testing architecture either, do we? No, no, indeed. 
So, so using your using your definition of unit that you found in that book, you could say that a microservice is a unit, right? True, you could. Yeah, and of course that might go against what people normally refer to as a unit because it's a you know, it's a small, very fast running thing that doesn't cross process boundaries, for example. One of the big problems I think we have in the industry is terminology. I hear people use the, the term module a lot, or component, or unit, or integration. And nobody can really explain what these things actually mean. There's no single unified definition. And this just bugs me. It really bugs me. And it's it's hilarious. Uh, sometimes during my architecture carters, I'll be listening to a group discussing uh, their, their, their solution, and they'll be using the word component to mean very different things. Uh, one person might be using the word component to mean like, you know a whole web app, and somebody else might be using the word component to mean something that runs inside the web app. And we have this horrendous, you know, um, ambiguity with terminology. Uh, so the layering and the code structuring thing, I do get a lot of pushback on that. You might be unsurprised to hear. So when it, whenever I do the module monoliths conference talk, uh, I do get a lot of people saying that's not right. That's not how we do things. But there is a glimmer of hope because occasionally I do get people email me afterwards and say, we've tried your package by component thing and we're, and we're trying to, you know, make fewer, fewer classes public. And it works really well because now we have a structure and, you know, our web controllers can't access our, our repository objects because they're all package protected. So the ideas around thinking about structuring your code and not using the layers. And of course, you can have a component with internal layers, but that's a different story. That sometimes is, is good. The testing thing, I've got total kickback. Nobody, nobody likes the testing thing at all. <laughs> Unsurprisingly. That's like a step too far. And I don't know how to address that. Maybe I'm just totally bonkers and totally wrong. Or, or maybe it's just, it's, you know, it's just too different to what people are doing now. Who knows? Sure. So I was thinking back to an experience I had um, at one of the very first uh, spring conferences that I went to. And um, uh, I think it was Keith Donald that was actually uh, presenting. And he was talking about this notion of, you know, putting all the related things um, for a particular business concept into a package together, you know, very similar to what we've been yeah. talking about. And as opposed to a controller's package and a service package and so forth. And I felt this, you know, really visceral reaction inside <laughs> of my, you know, self that, that, that this is wrong. Yeah. This is absolutely incorrect. I had no idea why it was incorrect or why, it, you know, why it was wrong, but it was wrong. I've, I've also had the same reaction. And, um, it's, it's, it's really, uh, it, it's really fascinating, I guess. You, know, you start to think about you know the psychology of how we adopt conventions and and practices, and they become so ingrained into our thinking that you know if you dare challenge some of those things that we just don't talk about. I mean, this happens in every area of life, any discipline that you can come up with. There are certain things that just you know we don't agree on much, but we agree on these five <laughs> things. Yeah. So you know, sure please, why. for the love that is all of, of all that's decent and holy, don't touch those five things because at least we agree on those. Yeah. And and you're walking right into the door, and you're just you know saying you know what? Not only am I going to touch one of, them, I'm going to touch all five of them right now. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I remember the the, the first time I, I saw somebody uh, propose the package by feature approach where you dump all of the you know all of the customer stuff into a customer package i i had the same reaction i'm like no that's that's just totally wrong because at the moment i know where to find my controllers and i know where to find my data access objects and and you know i i have to learn a whole different way to navigate my code base and of course it's absolutely stupid because if you've got tooling like intellij you just you know tap shift twice type the class name you're done you can find anything you want so 
Yeah, some of those initial reactions are just hilarious. Well, you know, we do that with people too, right? You know, if you think about it, you know, we, we put, we put all the sysops people in a, in a group together. We put all the, all the, uh, you know, kind of the Java coders in a group together. We put all the DBAs in a group together. We put all the web designers in a group together and we know where to go find those people. And then we tell them to go build software and we create all these circular dependencies yeah. amongst all the, amongst all the silos. And we wonder why we can't detangle that. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's the same thing. You know, we kind of, are, I don't know if it's ingrained into us that we want to, uh, we organize by specialization, you know, what the thing does as opposed, you know, you know, what, what, what is your task in terms of the grand scheme of things as opposed to, you know, organizing things by what is the goal of the value that we're trying to deliver? And you see that, you know, this is where, you know, necessary Conway's law reference. We'll go ahead and get it out of the way because <laughs> it comes up. It comes up again and, you know, every, you, you, you know, you can have the Conway's Law drinking game at a, at a conference. When is it finally going to come up in every single, uh, microservices presentation or presentation in general? Um, you're going to see, you're going to, any, any conference talk, you're going to hear microservices, you're going to hear Conway's Law. Probably, you know, there's probably a few other, uh, uh, buzzwords out there that, that we could play bingo with. So, uh, there, there was one thing that, that I wanted to get to that I thought we'd get to, but we didn't. Um, so I'll bring it right up because I thought this was fascinating that you proposed it, let it sit there for a while, and then you came back to it several minutes later and proved it out where you basically said, yeah, you know, if, if you look at the way that we actually do Java um, in terms of, you know, again, this is one of those another cargo cult is that, oh, um, all, all Java classes are public classes because I don't know why, you know, that's that's what when I create a new class. Um, in most tools, it, it, it slaps public on. Now, Eclipse will pop up a dialogue with about 80,000 things <laughs> that you can choose options on. And we just get, you know, it, why are you asking me all these questions? Just create a class. Darn it. And, <laughs> and, um, and, and you can actually change the mod of access modifier of the class in the, in that dialogue, but, uh, we never do. Um, so because we do that, um, you said, yeah, there's really no difference in the layered, or the ports and adapters, or the package by feature, or the package by component. You know, if you take all the conceptual boundaries oh, right. yeah, yeah. away, they don't actually exist in the code. The thing that gets compiled down to bytecode is identical across the board between the different architectural styles. And it's only when you start to apply at least the modifiers that you have in, say, Java, that you can actually see you know real differences in terms of what you're able to do at code time and 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 what the compiler is actually able to um, prevent you from doing, you know, kind of uh, before you create a system as opposed to, well, now we've built a bunch of code and we've got a tool that's going to go behind us and run regex and say, oh, you did something wrong. You need to go back and fix that. And you say, oh, shut that thing <laughs> yeah, off. It will still compile that. and build and deploy. <laughs> Come to out. You can't, but you can't shut the compiler. If you, if you use the access modifiers properly, you can't shut the compiler up. You actually either have to not make that mistake or you have to say, I'm not going to use the access modifiers yeah. um, in this way and I'm going to make everything public again. So one of, one of the big uh, pushbacks I get with, with my package by component approach is, is I'll, I'll get people say to me, does that mean you don't trust the teams you work with? Uh, and, and it's not that I don't trust developers to do the right thing. But if you have tooling there to tell people when they're doing the wrong thing, I think that's much more effective than relying on, you know, post-compilation tools like those silly regex build rules, uh, for example, that you can easily ignore. The thing you're referring to is I, I read a blog post 
and again, this was feedback after the, the module one list talk uh, from, from an early iteration. And basically I, I drew some really simple UML class diagrams to illustrate, you know, this is what your code might look like with a layered architecture. Here's a ports and adapters architecture. Here's a package by feature and here's package by component. And yeah, if you, if you make all of the Java types public, the whole packaging thing doesn't add any value whatsoever. All you're using Java packages for is simply as an organization mechanism. They're like folders. And if all of the Java types are public, all of the different options, although they're conceptually very, very different, they're all syntactically identical. Uh, and that's a, that's a real eye-opener for a lot of people. And of course, as you say, once you start to reintroduce the access modifiers and, and you start thinking, well, you know, I have this class here, can it be made, made more restrictive? You start to get some very different pictures. Now, th there are two things here, of course. The packaging system in Java is pretty basic. It's not ideal. You can make the packaging system work, but things like sub packages, of course, aren't supported. So anything you put in a sub package, it, the, the, there's no kind of hierarchical relationship there. So that's the first thing. The saving grace to all of this, of course, is Jigsaw. So Java 9 and the Jigsaw project, uh, which is modularizing the Java code base, that's going to introduce, hopefully, fingers crossed, touch wood, and, and all that, it's going to introduce the, uh, the module system. And the thing with the module system is that you can make all of your Java types public. But when you're creating modules, you only export a very small subset of those classes. So that's really the saving grace here. I think if Jigsaw gets some wide adoption, uh, we can start reintroducing the compile time checking and some really decent approaches to modularity using the module system. Okay, we can do that with OSGI now, but... I'm not trying to be controversial, but I don't see people using OSGI that much. You will get some comments in, in the uh, in the podcast feed about that. I do apologize now. <laughs> I welcome the comments uh, showing up. I was an adopter of OSGI um, circa 2008. Wow. Started a large project that theoretically um, would benefit quite well from um, an architecture that would allow me to do some of the OSGI things like um, I've got plugins based on, you know, there's kind of a core set of functionality that everybody's yeah. going to need. And then there's some, 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 some specific functionality that some of these different, I was working in a, in a research hospital servicing uh, laboratories and they had some specific things that they needed. And we were always struggling with, well, how do we service this laboratory without disrupting this laboratory? Um, a lot of the things that we're talking about that we would do microservices for today, we didn't have that word yet, but um, we were talking a lot about modules yep. and we were talking about OSGI modules and at the sense and, and the uh, spring source got really um, into this world um, as well. And they, and they went and built an application server around um, OSGI. And I was one of the first people to actually buy that thing. We got in, we, we, we built this, we built all these OSGI bundles and, I think at one point we had something like 27 of these things. And um, we hit this point where we couldn't actually ship code anymore um, because we got all the module boundaries incredibly wrong. Oh. And so one of the things that I learned very quickly was that if you don't actually understand or have, you know, um, understand modularity and you don't have a decomposition strategy that actually makes sense, um, OSGI will happily make your life a living hell. Yeah, I've, I've seen that a few times with some of my customers. Yeah, and uh, um, I think uh, Jigsaw, you know, is is a bit less ambitious 
Yes. Um, in yep. terms of the things that it's trying to do, but it's trying to do some very valuable things. I've been waiting for Jigsaw since it was announced at Java One 2007. It's been a while. <laughs> when I was there. It? So yep. we're, we're, go- we're going, we're going on 10 years. I think it was supposed to be, um, I, I think the announcement then it was going to land in Java yeah, 7. Yeah, I thought Java 7 as well. And yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so I, I look, I look forward to that. Uh, maybe we'll get some better tools to help us think about this. Um, so that we can, you know, we can do modular monolith, monoliths and then, and then make, you know, you know, when we need microservices, because I, you know, I've, I've ranted about this a few times that, you know, if you don't really know why you're doing this or you don't really have the need for this thing or that thing that microservices is trying to give you, you're going to pay an awfully hefty tax yeah. in terms of creating a distributed system. And um, it's going to require you to do a lot of things that you don't have to do right now that you've probably never done before. And if you don't learn how to do those things well, then um, you think you're in a problematic state now. You don't even want to know what state you're going to be in. Indeed. And it, it's the same with modules, of course. You can you, you, There's a certain tax associated with going down one of the, the module frameworks. And... Sure. If you can do something like my package by component approach, which is really like a, a poor person's mo- module system, but if you can do something like that and restrict as much code as you possibly can, make sure your boundaries are correct, then you know you're in a really good place once you've got some confidence that that's the correct decomposition to shift it into modules or, or to microservices if you want to. Well, we're uh, we're actually running low uh, on time here. Had a couple of more questions that I try to ask of of everybody. Um, and, and the and the first one of those is, you know, we're we're trying to do uh, an architecture podcast, sort of for architects by architects. And um, one of the things that I hope is that there are people listening who are either aspiring to this role or are in this role for the first time and are trying to figure out what they're doing and how to do it well. So, you know, what's the one biggest piece of advice that you would give to that person? Uh, so this might come across as a bit cheeky, but buy my book. So well, <laughs> one of the reasons I, I wrote my software architecture for developers book, which you can read for free on online via Limpa, by the way, is that when I, when I was moving into my first software architecture role, a lot of the books out there didn't really make sense. You know, they didn't ask, answer the fundamental question of, as an architect today, what should I do? And that's what I hope my book addresses. So it's like, a, it, it, well, I mean, it's, it, it's entitled Software Architecture for Developers. So that would be my one piece of advice. I guess that the other piece of advice would be find a mentor, someone who can help you, you know, make that transition. Excellent. Well, we'll definitely uh, link to the book among various other things um, in the show notes. Um, for folks who uh, don't look at that or have time uh, to go check those out and are just going to listen to the podcast and move on with their busy day, where can we find these things or you know, just in general, the things that you're working on these, de- these days that we might want to check out? So uh, leanpub.com is where to get the book from. And my website, simonbrown.je, is a good reference for all of the other stuff. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast. It's been a fun conversation. You're welcome. Thank you very much. All right. My guest today has been Simon Brown. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Architecture Radio. For more information, including other episodes, visit us at softwarearchitecturerad.io. Join the discussion by posting to an individual episode's comment thread or leave us feedback on iTunes. You can also message or mention us on Twitter at SWArchRadio. Until next time, this is Matt Stein for Software Architecture Radio.